Hola, this is Raquel, and you're listening to the Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone. How are you today? I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you today on this Sunday, October 9th, with another in our sermon series, God Goes to War. Today is part eight, in fact, and the sermon title is called God's Final Judgment. I'm so glad you could be here. We are only one sermon away from finishing this series. I told you in the beginning, nine weeks, we're covering all 21 chapters. This is an epic journey. Today, we're going to be in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. So you might want to get your Bible or Bible apps out. It's going to be a terrific journey as we continue in our study here. Now, there's many things in Revelation to learn, as well as many terms that are often used. How many of you have ever heard of the term Millennial Kingdom or the Thousand-Year Reign? Today, we're going to find out about what that is and how important it is to God and what it means to us. We're also going to learn about God's final judgment. But before we dive in, as always, let us start with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for the incredible privilege we have to hear from your word today. Lord, teach us from it. May we just digest it all. May we understand the difference between the imageries that are presented here in this book of Revelation and the truths that you really want us to know. We thank you for all of this in your incredible and mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Several years ago, there was a TV evangelist who was preaching about his view of the second coming of Christ. Towards the end of the program, he made this pitch. Jesus is coming soon, perhaps tomorrow. Send $10 for a video that will explain the second coming of Christ. Please allow six weeks for delivery. What's wrong with that picture, folks? Did this guy really believe Jesus could come at any moment? Of course not. But anyone who seriously reads scripture comes away with a very real impression that Jesus could come tomorrow. Well, everyone except most of the prophetic teachers on TV, radio, and the internet. According to them, we're going to need way more than just six weeks for Jesus to return. In fact, According to most of these teachers, there's a bunch of things that need to take place first. Things like, there's a mystery era or a church age. We talked about that last week, and that's going to last for a few more years. Then there'll be a decline in the last days. Then Jesus returns secretly to rapture the Gentiles. Then they say there's the building of the temple. And then there's the great tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation, followed by a millennial kingdom, Christ reigning on earth for a thousand years. And then Jesus will judge mankind. So you see, Jesus can't come tomorrow. There's way too much stuff that needs to be done first. I mean, just to get the permits to rebuild the temple would take longer than six weeks. You know what I'm saying? Now, as complicated as that may sound, this is one of the simpler interpretations of all the information I was gathering for this sermon. I would encourage you to do a Google search sometime for Google images on something called dispensational premillennialism. And you're going to find dozens of charts and drawings most of which, in my opinion, are really convoluted and confusing. And you know, folks, there was a time when I really used to believe that stuff. But there are several reasons why I don't anymore, and I want to share them with you today. The first reason is that this kind of teaching requires at least two or three second comings of Christ, all depending on how you count them. You have the secret coming of Christ to rapture the church. Then you have the public coming of Christ to set up the millennial kingdom. And then maybe you have Jesus slipping away and coming back for judgment, depending on who does the teaching on this part of the presentation. And then there's the third and fourth comings, maybe even a fifth coming. It just doesn't make any sense, folks. You have to learn and dig into this. There can only be one second coming. 
The second reason I don't believe this approach is that this kind of teaching focuses on the fact that Jesus must come to earth to receive his kingdom. And until that time comes, Jesus is not king and he does not reign, at least not yet. In other words, for Jesus to become king, he has to wait for the millennial kingdom, several years yet in the future. And in order to receive his kingdom, Jesus has to come to earth. But that's bogus. It is just unscriptural. It's not true. For example, the prophecy in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, tell us, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all nations of the world, so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So think about this. Did Jesus have to go to earth to receive his kingdom? No, he didn't. He was led into the heavenly throne room, into his presence, meaning the presence of God himself. And how long would his kingdom last? Forever. It said his rule is eternal. It would never pass away. In other words, it's not limited to a thousand years. In addition, Colossians 1.13 tells us Jesus' kingdom exists right now. And you and I, beloved, are a part of it. It says in Colossians 1.13, For he, God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. And the third problem I have with this millennial teaching is that this thousand-year thing only shows up here in Revelation 20. It's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Now, if you listen to most of the prophetic teachers today, you'll believe that this millennial kingdom lay at the very heart of God's plan for the end times. And yet, it's only mentioned once right here in Revelation 20, nowhere else. In addition, this false teaching directly contradicts other scriptures, such as 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 12. Let's read that. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. Take a look at verse 10. Go back and take a look at that. What is the day of the Lord thing Peter's talking about? Folks, that's the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back, everything's going to burn up. We don't have to wait for tribulation. We don't have to wait for some thousand year kingdom. We don't have to wait for the permits of a new temple. We don't pass go and collect $200. When Jesus returns, it's all over. When Jesus came the first time, he came to bring salvation. When he returns the second time, he's coming to bring judgment. And despite what you may have heard from others, that's the main focus of Revelation 20. When Jesus returns, he comes to bring judgment. But before we get to the part about Christ standing in judgment, we need to answer the question, what is this about someone reigning with Christ for a thousand years? Well, turn with me in our text to Revelation 20, verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy are those who, here it is, share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. You know who this is that reigns with Christ, don't you? That's us. You see, as I've been telling you for the past seven weeks, Revelation is filled with symbolic language. A great majority of this book is figurative, not literal. There is no literal thousand years meant here. 
Just like most of the other numbers used in Revelation, it has a symbolic meaning. One group of highly respected scholars noted, and I quote, as seven mystically implies universality, so a thousand implies perfection, whether in good or evil, end quote. You see, we're living in an era described in Revelation 20, an era symbolized by the thousand years. Now, how can we know that? There's a couple of reasons. First, we know that because we've shared in the first resurrection. Do you know when that happened? It happened when you were baptized into Christ. When I baptize someone, I put them all the way under the water. How long do I keep them there? Not very long at all. They go under the water to die for their sins, and they come up out of the water to walk in newness of life. They share in Christ's resurrection. It is their first resurrection from the dead. Secondly, when we rise from that watery grave, the second death has no power over us. The blood of Jesus covers us. And lastly, we can know that we're in the symbolic a thousand years period because we're priests of God right now. And we reign with Jesus right now. Revelation 1.4 and Revelation 5.10 tell us that he, Jesus, made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, and they will reign on the earth. That's us, folks. That's now. Right now, we are reigning with Christ. That's why Ephesians 2.6 tells us that for he, God, raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. Now, you may think that wherever you are today, whether you're with us live in person in New Braunfels or in your home right now, maybe you're traveling wherever you are, that's the reality of where you are. But truly, according to scripture here, you are seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus right now. That means you're ruling with Christ right now. You've got more power and influence in heaven than you've ever realized because you reign with Christ. Now, let's get to the real focus of Revelation 20, the final judgment. Look at Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. They read, And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. We need to recall that John was told to write this book of Revelation specifically to share with the seven churches that existed that day, and of course, for us as well. These were churches that faced persecution, imprisonment, even martyrdom for their faith. And Revelation ultimately told them two things they needed to hear. Number one, there's going to be a judgment of the living and the dead. Folks will pay for the harm they've done to God's people. And two, there'll be an ultimate eternal reward for God's people. It's worth it to hang in there and serve our God. Chapter 20 deals with the first of those two promises, judgment. I once read about a guide who took a group of tourists around the Empire State Building in New York City. On the elevator ride to the 102nd floor, a nervous woman asked, What if these cables should break? Would we go up or down? The guide replied, Well, that depends entirely on the kind of life you've been leading. Why would the guide think that? Because that's what it says in Revelation 20, verse 12, which we read a minute ago and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Now the world reads that and they think, hey, I've got a chance. I've done some pretty good things. Many years ago, Reader's Digest had an article about a 67-year-old man named Bill, who, during his lifetime, had donated over 100 pints of blood. You can imagine that somewhere along the line, he probably saved a few lives because of those donations. Bill later jokingly told a reporter, when the final whistle blows and St. Peter asks, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave a hundred pints of blood. 
That ought to get me in. On June 26, 2006, Warren Buffett, billionaire investor and founder of Berkshire Hathaway, announced he was donating much of his fortune to charity. Over time, most of Buffett's $44 billion in stock holdings would be given to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. When Buffett presented his gift to the Gates, he made this remark, There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Now, how did Bill, the blood donor, and Warren Buffett, the old rich guy, believe they could get into heaven? They believed they could get into heaven because of what they'd given, because of what they'd done. I mean, that's what it says in Revelation 20, verse 12b, doesn't it? Read it with me again. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Well, it kind of says that. Notice it doesn't say the dead got judged into heaven by what they had done. It only says they were judged according to what they had done. You've got to take a little closer look to see how people get into heaven. You've heard of people keeping two sets of books before? Well, God keeps two sets of books. In verse 12a, it says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. The Holman Christian Standard Bible reads this way, Revelation 20:12. I also saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then in verse 15, Revelation 20, verse 15, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, you can do all the good deeds you want. You can donate all the blood you've got. You can give all your wealth to the poor. But if your name is not written in the book of life, it won't make any difference, folks. You're not going to make it. Revelation 21, 27 tells us, Nothing evil will be allowed to enter heaven, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So whose Book of Life is it? That's right, it's the Lamb's Book. And who's the Lamb? Well, that would be Jesus. It's only by having your name written in his book that you have any chance of heaven. Now, I know someone that's listening today, or perhaps someone that's in person with us today, might ask that question, how can they get their name written in the book? Well, I'm just really glad you were asking that today. In Acts 16, verse 30, a Philippian jailer who was in the prison cell of Paul and Silas, asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said in the next verse, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But this jailer didn't know what to believe about Jesus, so for the next hour or so they taught him and his family what they should believe about Jesus. Then in verse 33 we read, And he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. Once this jailer and his family knew what to believe, they were baptized into Christ that very hour, which was a little after midnight. Earlier in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter was preaching to a very large crowd on the day of Pentecost. The message was so powerful that in verse 37, Acts 2:37, it reads, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter tells them in the very next verse, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear on how we should respond to God's free gift of salvation. First, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Be buried in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then rise up in newness of life and live your life for Christ. Folks, it's not that hard. The only reasons people would refuse to do it would be well, they just refuse. Or they've gotten advice from people who oppose it. 
or they refuse to believe Jesus is coming back, so they put off the decision, things like that. But the key thing is this, Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, there will be no second chances. So you need to be ready when he comes. You need to be ready now. I want to close today with this story. During Sunday school, a little girl had been taught about the second coming. After church, she quizzed her mother, Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back? Yes, honey, she said. Could he come this week? Yes, sweetheart. Today? Oh, yes. Could he come in the next hour? Of course. In a few minutes? Yes, dear. Mommy, would you comb my hair? Isn't that perfect? Even a child understands the impact of Jesus' second coming. Even a child realizes that when Jesus comes back, you want to be ready. And so the question for you, beloved, today is, are you? Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.